From Covenant Shreveport, this is Origins of the Faith. Chapter 11, Splitting Important Hairs, The Doctrine of the Trinity. Today we're getting into the doctrine of the Trinity, which is one of, I mean, if not the most foundational of the Christian doctrines. I mean, the Trinity is one of the things that really does separate Christianity from other religions, notably Judaism, Mm -hmm. because in Judaism, there is not a Trinitarian view. The view is that God is one which goes all the way back to the Torah and back to something like the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The idea being that God is not uh, multiple gods, certainly. Judaism was monotheistic. Um, But also God is not uh, somehow in multiple parts or pieces Um, Even though the Jews believed that God had a spirit Mm -hmm. that he would send, they did not have this kind of robust thinking of God as being multiple persons. Right. There were – certainly there were elements of God that Mm -hmm. could – I guess could be displayed in different ways. Like you think of the glory of God in the temple. Yeah. You think of the spirit and you think of even – I mean, certainly we're not getting into rabbit holes, but – the angel of the Lord right. in some instances. So mm-hmm. so maybe there was shelf space for that category, but certainly nothing that was certainly nothing that was obvious or blatant as a multi multi person being. Yeah. Yeah. And yet we see this from the beginning of scripture. Um, we see glimpses of God's triune nature, God's three in oneness from the pages of Genesis, where we see uh, seemingly God the Father, God the Creator, um, speaking creation into being. We see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. We see the Spirit of God pop up at various times throughout the story of the Old Testament. And we hear all of this talk of the coming Messiah mm-hmm. as well. But it's not until the New Testament that those three pieces, if you will, get put together in some sort of uniform way. And it comes in the Gospels primarily where we learn of Jesus speaking of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit notably Matthew 28, where Jesus, in his final sort of commission to his disciples, sends them out to baptize, not just in the name of Yahweh, right? not just in the name of one, the one God of Judaism, but in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But at no point in Scripture is the word Trinity used, and at no point do we get any kind of a robust theology of the trinity right like how how is the trinity three yet one and how how is is all of this god 
those are big questions yeah. coming into the first century, second century, third century, that as the church enters into this new era of peace in the Roman Empire, that suddenly they are freed up, not only because they're no longer being persecuted, but also because their scholarship is now being bankrolled by the Roman Empire, and they now have the opportunity to really start to dig into this foundational Christian doctrine of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, not to mention there are already folks out there whose views conflict with each other and with the established orthodoxy. Yeah, because there's no language around this. Mm -hmm. I think there is there is an element, a heretical element, that is active and present from the beginning that doesn't want to find common ground or unity within Orthodox Christianity. Sure. They have a unique perspective that they've formulated, whether um, maliciously or genuinely, but they're not interested in compromising that perspective at all or um, exploring other alternatives. And so I think you see some people who are sort of maliciously heretical, like they want what they're doing to subvert orthodoxy, and they want to kind of throw a wrench into everything. I think you have other people who are unintentionally heretical. They're trying to find language mm -hmm. to encapsulate these things that are, at the end of the day, thought of as divine mystery by the church, as, as sort of these unexplainable things that we are trying to explain. Sure. And we... we we know what it's not. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like when you say it wrong, we know it's wrong, but we also have a hard time saying it in a way that we all agree is correct as well. So let's make some creeds. Yes. That's why the creeds are so important. Yeah. And we've talked about this before. Today we're going to get into, uh, in particular, the Nicene Creed, which does come to the surface as not certainly not the first creed in the, in the life of the ancient church. But one of the most um, foundational, along with something like the Apostles' Creed, and the creed that does sort of set the precedent for the direction of Christianity after the 300s. Mm -hmm. And maybe a little bit of backstory as to how we actually get to that point is important. Um, this is chapter 11 of Church History in Plain Language called Splitting Important Hairs, and what Shelley says is that 4th century Christians felt a nagging restlessness about this doctrine. And, and I love this. There's this quote that he gives from a um, bishop who uh, described Constantinople as seething with discussion mm -hmm. over this issue of the Trinity. And what he says, quote, is that, in this city, you ask anyone for change, and he will discuss with you whether God the Son is begotten or unbegotten. Or if you ask about the quality of bread, you will receive the answer that God the Father is greater, God the Son is less. Or if you suggest that a bath is desirable, you will be told that there was nothing before God the Son was created. <laughs> and, and so he's clearly being sarcastic there, but he's also getting at what were some of the central arguments concerning... Primarily the nature of Christ. Like, yeah. That's really the first question that pops up, even before the question of the nature of the Holy Spirit comes to the surface. People are really struggling over, who is Jesus? 
and how does Jesus interact with God the Father? Mm-hmm. And so if you just look at those three kind of points of argument that he's talking about there, this is on page 127, one is that uh, one concerns the nature of Jesus's creation. So is Jesus like we believe God the Father to be? Is Jesus uncreated? Right. Meaning there there was no point in time where God the Father created Jesus the Son. Um, or was there a point in time, or was there a point in time when, um, all right, I'm trying to think of how to say this. Like a, there was no point in time where Jesus was created. There was no point in time where he did not exist. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm not sure it makes sense to me, but I'm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's like what so God the Father, is he eternal yes. alongside Jesus the Son? Or is there a certain point where God makes Jesus or or like an amoeba like splits himself in two and then right. you've got the Father and the Son? This is this whole uh, begotten or unbegotten mm-hmm. thing, which is language that's used in the Nicene Creed. That's right. Begotten and, not made. Right. And takes us back to John three sixteen, mm-hmm. right? Um, in the English. And and so, what the what the orthodox perspective becomes is that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus has always been, just like God the Father has always been, and there was no point where God begat him. Right. There's no point where God made him or birthed him or wh- however you want to think about that. That he he has always been, and. You know, John 1 is something we've referenced a lot on this podcast because it is so formational. But this is some of what John is getting at yeah. in the prologue of John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And and I, I think the beginning he's talking about there is not the dawn of um, the cosmos, but it is Earth itself. It is the creation that we see in Genesis 1. And at least there we know that the word, the Logos, already existed, Yeah, who we would think of as Jesus, who John identifies as Jesus. So that's one of the big arguments, though, because the primary heresy of the 300s is a heresy called Arianism. Yeah. And it is based on this pastor, Arius, whose explanation of the Trinity is that Jesus is not eternal— and that there was a point when Jesus did not exist, and that God the Father created him. God the Father did begat him at some point. So yep. that's that's one piece of the argument, is Jesus begotten or unbegotten. The second one has to do with the position of the Son in relationship to the Father. Is, is this like a ladder or an org chart where God the Father is at the top of the org chart, and then a few rungs down is God the Son, and then a few rungs down is God the Holy Spirit, or is this a unity? Is Are, are they peers, as it were, yeah. within this structure? Um, and is that even the right way to be thinking about it? So that's another argument that's going on at this time as well. And the last piece of that has also to do with when God the Son was created or was God the Son created. So um, this is a a huge topic of conversation that becomes an enormous source of conflict as well 
for the church in this age. And just to just to kind of pull out for a moment and think about the big picture, we have gone from the 200s, which w- was an age of persecution. It was not persecution necessarily from end to end, but there are significant seasons of persecution, um, primarily at the very end of the 200s with the Emperor Diocletian, who we've talked about, in a vicious persecution. And now we get into the 300s, and Christianity becomes legalized. Constantine, the emperor, um, had, you know, gives a lot of favor to Christians, and suddenly this religion is thrust to the forefront of the Roman Empire. And <laughs> Christians now, instead of fighting against the persecution that they were dealing with, are now fighting each other yep. over points of doctrine and theology. Whereas in the past, any fighting that would be done around points of doctrine or theology, I think primarily related to just outright heresy that would 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 have clearly been heresy, like the ones we've talked about in the past with Montanus and um, and people like that. But now this in this infighting is much more nuanced. And everybody's not clear all the time on, is this heresy? Is this not heresy? And people have very strong opinions about that. But there's not a lot of of common ground, at least initially. Yeah, it seems like once the persecution ends and you're not running for your life anymore, it's almost as though the, the Christians in the earlier centuries needed the boilerplate stuff. And that was enough to get you through you know, life or death situations. But once your once your faith tradition and your your pastors and your bishops are now now hold pretty significant political sway and are pampered, not just tolerated, but are outright pampered by the empire you're a part of, there's no one persecuting you anymore. You've got the time to sit back and not just digest the boilerplate stuff, but start nitpicking everything. Right. Right. And I think that's what we see in these next couple chapters. Yeah, and it's, you know, one of the issues here, and Shelley's brought this out some, but when when the age of persecution was going on, if your, if your question was, what does it look like for me to truly be obedient to the Lord or to be zealous for the cause of Christ, the answer to that was that you would sort of willingly face persecution Mm -hmm. and that you would potentially willingly face martyrdom. And we've talked about in recent episodes the rise of sainthood and the rise of these people called confessors who were those who were like seemingly faithful to Christ all the way to the point of death. And the stories of the martyrs become, I mean, they become the heroes of the faith even at this point those stories are passed on and passed on and passed on. And now we get into an age where martyrdom is seemingly over. And the big question for Christians is, what does it look like to be a faithful and zealous and all-in follower of Jesus in an age where not only am I not going to be killed for this, I'm being elevated to positions of power and prestige. Um, Even in this chapter today, he mentions after the Council of Nicaea how all these bishops got to just go hang out with the emperor, right. sort of in his salon, like la- laying yeah. around on couches with the emperor. 
and uh, you know how somebody says this must be heaven on earth or something, and it's just like it's just a whirlwind as we've talked about. But the big question is, what does it mean to be zealous mm-hmm. for the faith? And the answer that some people essentially give is it looks like being doctrinally right. It looks like being so um, uh, digging in so deep with Christian theology and doctrine that all like there is no whiff of heresy in my life. And not only that, I am fighting against so-called heretics. Mm-hmm. The other response to that question is, with the rise of monasticism, which we'll get into, I think, in a couple of chapters, and and that's monasticism is when people start saying, "I've got to leave the secular, uh, very worldly cities of the empire, and I've got to move out into a cave and, um, you know, swear off all." material goods and possessions and money and comforts and so forth. And it is to be an ascetic, Mm -hmm. right? It is to be somebody who is just living a life of extreme poverty and extreme devotion to Christ. Um, so, So those seem to be kind of the ways that people are answering that question of what does it look like to be quote unquote on fire for Christ in this age. Um, so the big, the big, issue here, as we've talked about, is this issue with this guy named Arius. Um, uh, Sometime around 318, Shelley says, Arius openly challenged teachers in Alexandria by asserting that the word, the Logos, Jesus, who assumed flesh in Jesus Christ, was a lesser God who had a different nature than God the Father, and that the Son was neither eternal nor omnipotent. So, notice... What he's done there, he hasn't simply said Jesus is less than God the Father. By doing that, he has also basically made Jesus a second God or demigod or Mm -hmm. lesser God. And that is not Trinitarian Christianity as we know it and understand it. Right. He's building a pantheon. That's right, yeah. It, it is, and, and Shelley may mention this, it is a little bit more akin to Gnosticism. Even though Arius was not a Gnostic per se, it is a little bit more in that kind of vein because the Gnostics tended to think that there must be sort of this supreme being out there who is unsullied by anything in the world and then all of these other kind of lesser gods that are interacting here in the material mm-hmm. world. So there is something about what he's saying that's probably appealing to the Gnostics of his age. Um, he was a created being, according to Arius, maybe the first created being and the greatest created being, but nevertheless created. He was begotten by God rather than being unbegotten. And this just blows up into this firestorm of scandal because by and large, the bishops who led the church at this point in time did not agree with Arius. There are some that he finds favor with, um, namely this bishop in what was a pretty significant place of power uh, called Nicomedia. The bishop's name is Eusebius. Eusebius becomes sort of an ally for Arius. But all of this infighting within the church leads Constantine to convene what is effectively the first worldwide 
council of the church. Yeah. And it's it's worth mentioning too, because I love that Shelley points this out. It's not just conflict within like the hierarchy of the church. It's not just the different bishops who are arguing over this. Arius's views so he gets popular yeah. because he goes so far as to create Shelley says he puts his ideas into jingles. So he <laughs> yes. made theme songs for his views. He's, he's got heretical theme he's songs. He's become evangelistic about That's right. his views. Yes. These jingles were being sung by dock workers, street hawkers, and the school children of the city. Right, right. So that's pretty crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Um, <laughs> I, would love, I would love for somebody to unearth an Aryan jingle. <laughs> this is one of the things that's interesting about Arius, and I don't think we... Get, I don't think he mentions this in, the, in this chapter, but to my knowledge, uh, Arius wrote a good bit, but because his writings were deemed heretical, his books were burned. Oh, yeah, so of course. So none of Arius's writing exists to this day, except, I believe, within the writing of Athanasius, who quotes some of Arius okay. in, like, in his, you know, polemic, polemical, you know, response to Arius's views. So we don't have his greatest hits album. We don't. Yeah. Mm. And we don't know if Athanasius is accurately quoting or if he is sort of paraphrasing or if he's um I don't know, kind of stretching what Arius said so as to create an ar- argument against it. Like yeah. it's just not clear. Um Arius gets excommunicated by the church and that uh just takes this all up a notch. Constantine, as a response to all of this, convenes what's called the Council of Nicaea, um, which is a city that's near that place Nicomedia, which is, a, in addition to Constantinople at this time, one of the most important cities in the empire. And this happens in 325. And, and like so Constantine not only funds this, uh, he invites all bishops from the Roman Empire to come and pays their way, and I, my understanding is, you know, certainly every single bishop was not there. Um, I think most notably the Bishop of Rome was not in attendance at the Council of Nicaea, even though he sent some emissaries. Um, it is largely bishops from what we would think of as the Eastern Roman Empire, even though I believe there are representatives there from Britain, um, even here in 325. Hmm. But it is the first time anything like this has really taken place. We have a we have kind of a church council that happens back in Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem. That's mainly the apostles themselves. But for the first time, now, you know, 300 years into the church, we're getting all of these leaders from all of these different localities coming together to debate this one issue. Mm-hmm. Um, on page f- uh, 130... He says, Arius was called in as a defendant in front of this council where Constantine was as well. Constantine is there dressed dressed in his imperial robes. Arius is called in as a defendant, and although he had little support, he stated his views in the most uncompromising terms. The Son of God was a created being made from nothing. There was a time when he had no existence, and he was capable of change and of alternating between divine and human, utter perfection and bearing sin. And the council said, blasphemy. That's right. Right? Blasphemy. And he is denounced and excommunicated by this council. Um, and so what? this is not the only thing that the Council of Nicaea discusses. I think, I think also a, a point of discussion for them was the actual, like formulating the actual date of Easter. 
Um, that's one of that's a Shelley doesn't really get into it in this book, but that is also a controversy that pops up early on in the church is when do we celebrate Easter? Yeah, because people are just putting eggs out all days of the week. <laughs> well, I think one of the issues is, and I'm not an expert on this particular subject, but I think one of the issues is is you have some people who want to celebrate Easter on. Uh, what we would think of as Resurrection Sunday, mm-hmm. um, that because that is the day that Jesus rose from the dead, we would celebrate the resurrection on Sunday. You have others who want to celebrate the resurrection on, or celebrate Easter, as it were, on um, the day of the crucifixion, mm-hmm. on the Friday. Friday, okay. And so that becomes a scandal, right? And so it's just like, man, all of a sudden the church is finding all of these things to debate and fight about and call each other out on and um and here we are 2000 years later and we don't have that problem anymore right sure we're, we're, yeah we're, we've, we've all learned how to get along we're back into the age of catholic christianity yes but the big thing that comes out of the council of nicaea is the nicene creed yeah um after uh arius is denounced the bishops realize we can't just excommunicate this guy and just go on about our business, we still have to, on some level, try to explain why we believe he's wrong and how we should speak rightly about Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And so what comes out of that is this Nicene Creed. Now, one thing to realize is that there are are basically two, um, I don't know, two levels or two eras to the Nicene Creed. There is an initial creed that comes out of the Council of Nicaea in 325. And that creed primarily looks like the first two parts of the creed that we have today. It looks like the section on God the Father and then the section on Jesus Christ, which if you'll notice in the Nicene Creed, the section on Christ is the longest section. It, mm-hmm. like, it, is, the, it is the most wordy of the three sections. Um, And what comes out of that first council are basically those first two sections. What is left out of that first council is the question of the Holy Spirit. The Council of Nicaea is primarily trying to answer the question of who is Christ. But later, the question of, well, who is the Holy Spirit comes up as well. Is is he God also? Was the Holy Spirit created at some point in time? So a lot of the same questions that Nicaea deals with with regards to Jesus pop up for the Holy Spirit later on, and those ultimately get settled later in the century, in 381, I think, somewhere around there, in what's known as the Council of Constantinople. And so what comes out of that is a more complete creed, which is basically the creed that we say today, every Sunday at our church. Um, And so it is technically not the Nicene Creed, even though that is the term it has been has come to be known by uh, by uh, Christians around the world, it its formal title is the Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed. We've got to start calling it that. It, I think so because it's real <laughs> easy to say. Constantinopolitan is my favorite ice cream flavor. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so that's the creed we say every Sunday is the Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed. And it, uh, even though that creed is pretty much uh, finished by the end of the 300s, uh, there will continue to be more controversy surrounding it. Um, later on, when you have something called the Filioque controversy, which involves 
the last part of the creed where it says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's, that's what we say every Sunday, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. However, the original creed only said the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Mm. And this becomes a dividing line between Eastern and Western Christians that ultimately, along with many other things, will lead to a schism between the East and the West um, several hundred years after this. Uh, one of the things Shelley mentions uh, as we wrap up is the word homoousius, which is that Greek word that gets inserted into the creed uh, that means of one being or of one substance. Yeah. And that becomes the big, um, the, kind of the big defining point for what comes out of Nicaea is homoousius, that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is of the same substance. He is of the same being as the Father. And Shelley mentions that you have this, you know, Arius continues to have followers that um, exist throughout the 300s and at times hold power. Arius gets to come back at one point from being excommunicated and once again gets to become uh, a pastor and so his followers are, are myriad, and you have some who try to take a moderate position and try to be semi-Aryans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they want to insert not the word homoousius of the same substance, um, but another word that's a lot like it, which is homoousius or homoousius, which is a word that means um, something to the effect of uh, similar. Similar to. Yeah. Uh, not exactly the same, but kind of like him. Yeah. Um, and so they try to take this sort of middle of the road approach, and and that's where we get uh, that saying, uh, where we where we speak of like an iota being the dividing line between something. You know, not one iota. Like it comes from the Council of Nicaea because it is literally the Greek letter iota or the Greek letter i that is the difference between the word homoousius and homoousius. And um, so that may all seem like kind of just like way up there, uber uh, heady type stuff to you. But man, it is a significant controversy for the church, and it is a formative controversy for the church, because after Nicaea, this truly is a Trinitarian faith, and the church has language in the form of the creed to speak of this. Yeah, it's so, like the boilerplate just got bigger. Yes. It just got better understood. So uh, let's let's stop there. Any any closing thoughts for you, Taylor, in all of this? Nicene Constantinopolitan. <laughs> There's my. I'm sticking with that. Yes. Uh, one thing I'll, I'll throw in the show notes is uh, we did a series, a podcast series, a while back on the Nicene Creed specifically, and in that series we go through the history of the Nicene Creed, and we go through the creed itself and talk about the various elements of the creed. So if that's something you're interested in, particularly because it's our kind of foundational statement of faith as a church, um, I'll throw that in the show notes, and it'd be, uh, it'd be a great thing for you to check out as well. You know, I do have one note before we close out, and it's on page 136, the last little bit of this chapter. One of the things that really hammers home for me just why this was such an important doctrine And Shelley mentions, in the early church, salvation was about more than just going to heaven. 
It was about union with Christ and with God. Father, Son, and Spirit are the model of this unity. Mm. And I think that's what made it more important because just to toss that out there, that the thought could be for a lot of modern Christians, well, salvation is about heaven. Salvation is about me and Jesus, and that's what gets me to heaven. Yeah. yeah. But this, this early Christianity was about more than that. It was about unity both later but also now and unity with God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And so that's what made this that's what made this so important for these guys. Which is extremely biblical. I mean, Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer towards the end of John's gospel that that all those who will one day come to know him will be one with him yeah. as he is one with the Father. He doesn't pray, Father, I pray that they can go to heaven one day when they mm-hmm. die. He prays that they would be one, that they would be unified with Christ uh, in the same way that Christ is unified with the Father. So it was a very biblical thing and um, a very true thing as well. So, all right, guys, uh, that's a lot for today to chew on. I hope you're enjoying it, and we'll see you guys next week. Take care.